I was raised in a home where Christ was invited to dwell. And church involvement was never optional. By the way, parents, that's still a fantastic formula for running your household. Routinely invite Christ to dwell and never make church involvement optional for you or your children. Throughout my adolescence, I was given solid biblical instructions, not only from mom and dad, but also from the leaders at church. I was taught and told that the best way to live life is one surrendered to God. I was taught to submit to authority. I was taught to obey my parents. I was told that God's word is reliable. I was instructed to love my siblings. I was told throughout the years to be kind and courteous and polite, to always say yes ma'am and no ma'am, yes sir and no sir, to never smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do. All throughout my adolescence years, I was given these solid biblical instructions. But as I lived my life, I, I never was one who was overly rebellious. But there were times when I simply wondered why. Why do I have to live a certain way? Why do I have to surrender to the Lord? Why do I have to obey my parents? Why do I have to submit to authority? Why do I have to be kind to my older sister and younger brother for crying out loud? Why do I always have to say yes ma'am and no ma'am, yes sir and no sir? Now, now these questions of why were rarely verbalized from my lips, but I remember hearing them echo in the empty chambers of my mind. The reason I did not verbalize the question is twofold. Number one, I realized that verbal defiance never worked for my older sister, so why did I think it was going to work for me? Secondly, I can always anticipate the response of my parents. For mom and dad would say in general, and dad would say specifically, because I said so. But why do I have to do this because I said so. Well, why can't I do this? Because I said so. That statement of because I said so was in my household, one of those silence statements. It was in the conversation that when that statement came up, that meant that the conversation was over. It was simply because I said so. Now, I'm not one for defiance, but I will tell you there is great power in answering the question of why. Why do we do certain things? Why don't we do other things? I think that for far too many Christians, we have taken that same mentality into our spiritual walk with Christ. We do certain things. We don't do other things simply because someone along the way said so. We don't know why we're supposed to live a Christian ethic. We don't know why the Lord tells us what we ought to do and tells us what we ought not to do. We don't know why we're supposed to do it other than the fact that someone said so. So for far too many Christians trying to live out the Christian life today, obedience is nothing more than an outward display of perceived acceptable actions with little to no inward transformation. We don't know why we're supposed to live the Christian ethic. Now, all throughout the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote a significant portion of the sacred script. 
He was under the power of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Lord. And the Lord would direct him in the first few chapters of any given letter to lay out a theological framework. And then by the time he got to the closing chapters of the letter, he would draw out ethical implications based on that theological framework. So Paul understood that what we believe impacts how we behave. That what we learn shapes how we live. That our doctrine influences daily duty. And we understand, and the Apostle Paul understands, that our identity always precedes activity. Because of who we are in Christ, that dictates and determines what we do. We are never to get that backwards. For we do not live right in the hopes of being right before the Lord. Oh no, we are declared right in Christ. And because of that declared rightness, then we demonstrate a right way to live before a watching world. And many times, the Apostle Paul not only gives us the ethical implications of the theological framework of the gospel, but sometimes he even tells us why. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle is coming to a conclusion of his theological framework of chapters 1 through 11. And now in chapter 12, he's going to tell us this then is how we ought to live. But in addition to just doing it because he said so, he tells us why. He tells us why we have a relationship makeover in Christ. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Romans chapter 12. I want to read the first two verses in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 12, I want to read verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning, I want you to look up, look within, look around, and look behind. Because in light of the gospel, we look at everyone differently. First, I want you to look up and see a God worth worshiping. Here, the Apostle Paul says, as we begin chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brother, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Everything that Paul writes in chapter 12 is rooted and connected to that opening phrase, in view of God's mercy. Why do we live a certain way? Because of God's mercy. Why do we engage in certain activity? Because of God's mercy. Why do we refrain from doing other things? Because of God's mercy. The word mercy means to withhold punishment that is deserved. And this morning, to the redeemed, I ask the question, has God been merciful to you? I can look at my own life and I can tell you that God is a merciful God for he has withheld punishment that I deserved. 
He's withheld eternal punishment for I deserve hell and you deserve hell because we are completely and utterly sinful. But Jesus came and died on the cross in our stead. And by that action, that is very merciful because by the activity of Christ, God withheld punishment that I deserve. I can also give you examples throughout my earthbound existence when I deserve to be punished, but God in his infinite mercy has been kind to me. And I bet I'm not the only one in the crowd. You could probably tell story after story of God's display of mercy, not just eternal mercy, but earthbound mercy. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters talking about this merciful God. In fact, when he comes to our passage, when it says, in view of God's mercy, I realize that most of your English translations have mercy in its singular form. But in antiquity, in the New Testament Greek uh, scripture, the word mercy is plural. In view of God's mercies, not singular, but plural, that the mercy of God is so massive, it is so majestic, it is so multifaceted, that God's multiple mercies have been on display in your life. It's because of God's mercy that we are justified freely in Christ. It's because of God's mercy that The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ our Lord. It's because of God's mercy that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's because of God's mercy that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because of God's mercy that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. It's because of God's massive, majestic, multifaceted mercy that we live a certain way. In view of God's mercies, we look up. And we see a God worth worshiping. We worship him because he is so merciful to us. We live our life for him because he has been merciful towards us. In view of God's mercy, offer your body as living sacrifices. The word body does not only mean your physical body, but it does encompass that. It means your mind, it means your heart, it means your hands, your feet. It also means your emotions, your attitudes, your actions, everything. In view of God's mercy, offer yourself, offer your life, offer your body as a living sacrifice. Now that two-word phrase, living sacrifice, it is rather counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, most sacrifices are dead, a dead sacrifice. In fact, more times than not, the animal was already dead before that animal was placed on the altar. Because in the sacrificial system, the priest understood that it is quite dangerous to have a living sacrifice. You know what the danger is? The danger is that animal might come off the altar prematurely. Most of the time, it was a dead sacrifice. Here, Paul says that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, best I can tell, in the Bible, there are two living sacrifices. One is a story that's told to us in the Old Testament. The other is a story told in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the story comes to us in Genesis chapter 22. It's there that Father Abraham was tested by God Almighty. The Lord said to him, take your son, your beloved son, your one and only son, Isaac, Go to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. The request, humanly speaking, is problematic for a couple of reasons. Number one, the Lord had already stated earlier in Genesis that he did not delight in human sacrifice. 
And also, in the previous chapter, the Lord had already made a promise to Abraham that the favor, the blessing that rested upon Abraham would flow to and through Isaac, not Ishmael. So here in our story of Genesis chapter 22, when the Lord comes to Father Abraham and says, take your one only son Isaac, the one that you love, your beloved son, the one of favor, take Isaac, go to Mount Moriah, and there I want you to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Abraham understood that in order to be a burnt sacrifice, he would have to slice and dice his son. He would have to slaughter him. He would have to kill him. He would have to dismember him and place the parts of his body there on the altar. The next morning, Abraham woke up, he saddled his donkey, got his servants, and off they went with Isaac towards Mount Moriah. They traveled for three days. At the end of the third day, they looked up, and there in the distance was Mount Moriah. Abraham said to his servants, now you stay here. The boy and I will go worship, and we will come back. Friends, I've got to tell you, every time I read that story and come across that line, we will go worship and we will come back, it sends chills up my spine because I know what Abraham knew, that Abraham was a man of faith who believed in a God of resurrection, even as early as Genesis 22, because he knew what he was called to do. He knew what he had to do. He had to take his one and only son, Isaac, and he had to slaughter him, kill him there on the altar. And if we're going to go worship and we're going to come back, then God must be a God of resurrection. God must be a God of miracles. God must have to step in and do something. And Abraham is a man of great faith. He takes his one and only son, Isaac. They make their way up towards Mount Moriah. I'm sure that as they're traveling, they're having conversation. Father Abraham is probably telling everything to Isaac. We visualize Isaac as that cute five-year-old boy with brown locks of hair, highly inquisitive, a full bundle of energy. We think it's almost cute that he asks the question, hey, Dad, I see we have the wood because you have strapped it to my back, and I see that we have a fire and a knife because both those things are in your hand, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham looks at his son and says, God will provide the lamb, my son. They make their way up to the top of Mount Moriah. Abraham and probably Isaac as well help to build the altar. They arrange the stone and the wood. And when we think about the story in its accurate timeline, we know that Isaac is not some five-year-old cute boy. No, by this time, Abraham's probably at least 115 years old, and Isaac is a young, strapping teenage boy. If push comes to shove, Isaac could whip his old man and outrace him down the mountain. The story of Genesis 22 is not just a story of the faithfulness of Abraham, but it's a story of the submission of Isaac. Isaac, the son, willingly voluntarily laid himself on the altar. Why? Because he trusted his father Abraham and he trusted God Almighty. I'm sure they had told the story. I'm sure that Isaac knew exactly what was going to happen, that he was going to have to be slaughtered. And, and he too had faith in God to do the miraculous. And so Abraham, I can well imagine and visualize that he shielded the eyes of his son because he could not dare to look and lock eyes with his beloved son. He drew the dagger from its sheath. He raised 
released it into the air. He began to shake because not only he was 115 years old, but because of all the anxiety that was pulsating through his body. And Father Abraham just wanted one fatal blow to kill his son. He could not even fathom the idea that the first blow wouldn't be a fatal blow. And so he thought to himself, I must drive it deeply into his heart. And as he's about to take the life of his son, an angel of God appears, says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. For now I know that you will not withhold anything from me, not even your one only son, Isaac. And Abraham looks up, and I bet Isaac does too. And they see a male lamb, a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham grabs that ram, and he sacrifices it in the place of Isaac. Isaac gets up from the altar. He worships God. He walks down the mountain as a living sacrifice. What's a living sacrifice, you ask? It's one who is completely surrendered to the word and the will of God. That's Isaac. Completely, utterly surrendered to the word and the will of God. In the New Testament, there was another son who climbed another mountain with a different form of wood on his back. This other son is none other than Jesus. The other mountain is Mount Calvary. And the wood on his back is the cross beam as he stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He made his way up that hill, that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. He permitted the Roman soldiers to stretch him wide and nail him to the cross to hoist him into the air on that faithful Friday in the third decade of the first century. And the reason Jesus did that is because he was being obedient to the word and will of his Father in heaven. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He paid a sin debt he did not owe. Because, friend, you and I have a sin debt that we cannot pay. And Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. And Jesus trusted the word of the Father. Jesus bowed his head, he gave up his ghost, he said, it is finished. They took his dead, lifeless body, placed him into a borrowed grave, and on the third day, God the Father said to God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit, it's time for you to get up. And Jesus got up from the grave. He walked out of that tomb as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? He was completely surrendered to the word and the will of God. Here in our passage of Romans chapter 12, Paul says, in light of the massive mercy of God that's been displayed in your life, you offer your body, you offer yourself, you offer your life as a living sacrifice for this is your spiritual act of worship. You do not own yourself. You have been bought with a price, so you glorify God in everything that you think, feel, say, and do. When he gets to the end of verse 2, he simply says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the mold, the shaping of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's been several months, but when we were in Romans chapter 1, I made the statement that a depraved mind of chapter 1 can only become a transformed mind of chapter 12 by going through the spirit-controlled mind of Romans chapter 8. You can't go from chapter 1 to chapter 12 without going through chapter 8. You cannot go from a depraved mind to a transformed mind without going through being a spirit-controlled mind of Romans chapter 8. 
that your mind does not give itself to the cravings, the desires of the sinful nature. No, you have been bought with a price and the Spirit of God has sealed your salvation. So now the Spirit of God has renewed your stinking thinking and now the Spirit of God has renewed your mind. And so you are controlled not by self, not by society. You're controlled by the Spirit of God. And a depraved mind becomes a spiritual mind and in turn a transformed mind. Because you can't get from chapter 1 to chapter 12 without going through chapter 8. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, look up and you'll see a God worth worshiping. Friends, why do we give ourselves to the Lord? Why do we give ourselves to the work of the church? Why do we give ourselves to the call of the gospel upon our lives? Because of his massive mercy. In view of his mercy, Paul says, I want you to look up and you will see a God worth worshiping. Secondly, uh, I want you to look within and you'll see a sinner worth saving. Look with me again, verses 3 to 8. Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 3. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we are many, we form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Friend, in view of God's mercy, you look within and you see yourself for who you are. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Who are you? You are a wretched sinner. Who am I? I am a twisted sinner. I am perishing. You are perishing. We deserve hell. And yet, because of God's mercy, he has saved us in Jesus Christ. You remember what the Apostle Paul wrote? What a wretched man that I am. Who can deliver me? Who can rescue me from this body of sin and guilt? And the only answer is thanks be to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. You look within and see yourself for who you are. You are touched and tainted. You are marred and scarred by sin. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourself more lowly than you ought either. Just see yourself as God sees you. You are a sinner in need of salvation, and you cannot save yourself. You can't do enough good to save yourself. You can't do enough good to somehow merit your salvation where God says, okay, you've done enough. Come on into my heaven. No, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. It's only through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that our sins are covered, atoned, and forgiven. So because of God's mercy, you look within and you see yourself as a sinner in need of salvation. But your salvation is more than just fire insurance. It's not that you just accept Jesus because you don't want to go to hell. I mean, I know you don't want to go to hell, neither do I. It's a pretty good reason that you just don't want to go there, right? I mean, nobody wants to go there, but you're saved not just as fire insurance. No, you're saved to serve. Paul gives us seven spiritual gifts in these few verses. 
I don't think that's an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he gives nine spiritual gifts. In Ephesians chapter 4, he gives four other spiritual gifts. I don't think at any point does the apostle say, let me give you an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts that God could potentially give his children. No, the point is that you've been saved to serve. That God, who loves you so much, not only has he saved you, but he has equipped you to do his work. He's equipped you to do um, his work, taking his gospel across the street and around the world. And so the question is not, um, uh, what am I, uh, do I have a spiritual gift? The question is, what is the gift that God has given me? How has he shaped you? How has he wired you? How has he passioned you? And what can you use at your disposal to glorify God? A spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit. In other words, it's a gift that's given to you by God. You didn't earn it. You didn't create it. You didn't make it. It was simply a gift. A gift given not out of obligation but adoration. Simply because God loves you, he has gifted you. A spiritual gift is a manifestation of the Spirit given for the purpose of building up the church. Your spiritual gift is not given for you necessarily, but it's given for others. For the building up, the edification of God's people. So once again, you ask yourself, God, what have you given me? How can I leverage? What is the influence that I have? What are the talents that I have? What are the abilities that I have? What are the God-given things that are in my life that I can surrender unto you, that you can use in a great way to accomplish your work? In view of God's mercy, you look within and you see a sinner worth saving. You ask the question, why am I supposed to be part of a body of Christ? Why am I supposed to be part of a church? Why am I supposed to be active? Well, it's because of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, you look within, you see that you're a sinner worth saving. And God has proven that, he, that you're worth saving because not only has he saved you, but he's equipped you to serve him. So first and foremost, because of God's mercy, we look up and see a God worth worshiping. We look within and see a sinner worth saving. Third, I want you to look around and see siblings worth loving. Look with me in Romans chapter 12. I'll read verses 9 to 16. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Friend, in view of God's massive mercy that he's displayed in your life, then you look around and you see Christian siblings worth loving. It was Warren Wiersbe who said love is the circulatory system of the church, the spiritual body. And Wiersbe went on to say that love must be honest, not hypocritical. You look around and you see brothers and sisters in Christ, those who share in that same massive mercy that's been displayed in your life, and Wearsby instructs us that according to Romans chapter 12, our love for each other must be honest. It cannot be hypocritical. But you think to yourself, but it's hard to love some church members. I get it. I understand. But whoever told you that it was easy for God to love you? 
I mean, God loves you. And because of that merciful love, then he compels you to love others. In our passage, he gives 12 imperatives, 12 commands. They are staccato style in fashion. He just comes at us one after the other. And Paul says that our love must be sincere. What does sincere love look like? Well, he describes it. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You and I live in a culture that just tells us to love. And normally what that means is you must check your convictions at the door. That if you're going to love in our culture, it means that you cannot tell someone they're doing something wrong. If you're going to love in our culture, you've got to allow people to do whatever they want to do. If you're going to love in our culture, you must not stand up for truth because you've got to check all that at the door. Friend, that is not sincere love of Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, the apostle says, let me describe for you the sincere love that must be on display in the church. It means that we hate what is evil and we cling to what is good. We hate what is evil. The word hate, it means to abhor. It means to despise. There is not a stronger word in the Greek text. We've got to hate what is evil. And yes, You've got to hate the evil that's inside of you, and you've got to hate the evil that surrounds you. And I'll be honest, it is infinitely easier for us to hate the evil that's around us versus the evil that's inside of us. But here, Paul reminds us that sincere love drives out evil because we hate what is evil, the evil inside of us and the evil that surrounds us. And in response, we cling to what is good, cling, clutch, grab, hold on to. We are devoted to one another. That word devoted means to adhere. It means to stick to. This idea of what is evil and what is good, it is not arbitrary. It is not individualistic. It is not internal. The standard of evil and good is God. God is the one who defines and describes what is evil. And God is the one who describes what is good. We cannot be a people who say, you know what? I'm just going to hate what I think is evil. And you hate what you think is evil. And I'm going to cling to what I think is good. And you cling to what you think is good. No, this idea of good and evil is not arbitrary. It is not subjective. It is not up to us to decide what is good, what is evil. No, God defines it for us. So what God hates, we hate. What God clings to, we cling to. Because in his word, he describes what he hates and he describes what he loves. These are strong terms. Hate, despise, abhor what is evil. Cling, clutch to what is good. Be devoted to each other. Stick to one another. These are intentional words. It was John Stott who said, holiness is not inevitable. Holiness is not something that happens naturally. You've got to intentionally desire and decide to be holy. And it's God who is holy who gets to describe how you live a holy life. And holiness is something that you desire, that you pursue, that you want more than anything else. So we hate what is evil, we cling to what is good by God's standard. And we clutch and adhere to one another in brotherly love. These words that are so graphic 
remind me of a story that I've shared with you before, but it bears repeating. Because when I, every time in the English text, when I come across the word that's translated devoted, it does mean to clutch and to cling, to adhere to, to stick to. And every time, I'm reminded of my grandfather. Many of you realize that my grandfather was very close to me growing up. I wanted to be just like granddaddy. He had a leather jacket, so I had a leather jacket. He drank coffee out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. I drank my Coke out of a Dunkin' Donuts cup. He drove down the road with one arm hanging out the window. I rode down the road with another arm hanging out the window. He had a tattoo on his left arm, and I really wanted a tattoo on my left arm. The only reason I didn't get it is because Granddaddy told me I shouldn't get it. And he said, your mama would kill me if I let you get a tattoo. My grandfather's tattoo was from his days in the Navy. It was a naval ship with an American flag. I can remember as a young boy, there were times that uh, my grandfather was strong and uh, well-built. And I would ask him, just make the flag wave, granddaddy, make the flag wave. And he would flex his muscles, and that old flag would begin to wave. I don't have to tell you, but over the years, the flag began to sink. And the old ship took a nosedive into his elbow, right? But my grandfather loved me. He was a, he was a rough, tough kind of guy, but he had a soft spot when it came to me. I love spending time with my grandfather. One day, uh, my grandparents decided to take us grandchildren to an amusement park. And as a boy, I did not like roller coasters. I've gotten over it. I love them now. But as a boy, I did not like roller coasters. And my grandfather was determined to get me on a roller coaster. He said, we'll do this together. We'll start off easy and slow. Here, let's do this one. Friends, I can tell you, when I saw the apparatus that he wanted to put me on, I wanted to run in the opposite direction. I think it was called an octopus. It was a black metallic uh, Chinese torture chamber for children is really what it was. And, and it, it had, I guess, eight arms because it was called an octopus. And, and at the end of each of those metallic arms, there was a little video cart that they said one or two people could get in. And when it started... That machine would just spin around. And as it spun around, the carts on the end of each arm would also spin. So you're spinning like this as you're spinning around. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? As a little boy, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting on that one. And this is an easy one, granddaddy? Come on, let's go do the merry-go-round or something else because this one doesn't look very fun. He said, I'll go with you. Well, if granddaddy said he was going to go with me, then I was going to go. I mean, I wasn't going to chicken out now. So I said, all right, I'll go. So they put both of us in one of those carts at the end of that long metallic arm. Friend, if you know anything about centripetal force, you realize that if there is a larger object that is beside a small, scrawny, knobby-kneed object, that when it begins to spin, the larger object will literally smash the knobby-kneed object. That's exactly what happened. We were going around, and granddaddy just didn't realize it, and he just smashed up against me. I was beside the side door, and there was his big arm with the American flag, American flag that was flapping at me. And I can remember that in that moment, all I could do was just grab a hold of his bicep with both of my arms. And I was clutching. I was clinging. I was devoted. I was adhering to his arm. The longer the thing went, the more I got uh, afraid. And I can remember saying, Granddaddy, make it stop. And I will never forget his response. It will in a minute. 
eventually that contraption came to a halt. And I'm not kidding you. They had to get the jaws of life out of a barn in that amusement park and come and un, un, uh, uh, grasp my, arm, my arms from his arm because I was devoted to him. It was an intentional effort. There was nothing that was going to pull me away. Paul says that is sincere love. Sincere love hates, despises what God says is evil, clings and clutches to what God says is good. And when it comes to each other, we adhere to one another in brotherly love. Paul continues describing what it is to have sincere love when he says, never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Have you ever wondered what does the word zeal means? It means fire in your belly. That we as Christians, as siblings in Christ, we ought to have a fire in our belly that never goes out. And friends, some of you probably have a fire that has dwindled over the years. And today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may the Spirit of God inflame you again a fire, a zealous zeal for the Lord. Let's be very clear. What ought to be the source of the fire in our belly? We just look at the word. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. What is your zealous fire? Serving Christ. What is, the, what is the thing that wakes you up in the morning? What is the thing that sets you ablaze for him? Serving Christ. Why do you have a flame for serving Christ? Why do you have a fire in your belly for the gospel? In light of God's mercy. Because God has been so merciful to me, I've got to look around and see siblings worth loving. And because of that, I've got a fire in my belly for the gospel. Let's be very clear that we ought to have a fire in our belly and that prominent fire in our belly ought to be for serving the Lord. But can I just say over the last few days, weeks, and months... Maybe that fire in your belly wasn't necessarily serving the Lord, but you were more concerned with politics than Christ. Or maybe it's you're more concerned with athletics, sports, than the Savior. Or maybe the fire in your belly is your children and ministering to them. And please don't misunderstand me. Your children are very important, but the priorities of a home are very clear in Scripture. It is God first, your spouse second, and your children third. Don't ever get them out of order. But I wonder, for those of us who've had a fire in our belly for politics, maybe because your guy got in, or maybe because your guy didn't get in, I wonder if we spend as much time serving the Lord as we have looking at the television or being on political platforms, I wonder what difference we would make for the kingdom of God. There are some individuals who can tell me, first, second, third string of every position of their favorite team. You can also tell me what star is associated with every recruit coming in this fall. And listen, I love sports just like anybody else, but I wonder if we had as much fire in the belly for Christ as we have for our favorite teams. I wonder what difference we would make in the kingdom of God. And don't misunderstand me. I want you to love your spouse. I want you to love your children. But your life does not revolve around them. Your life revolves around the Lord. The fire in your belly has to be 
The fervor for Christ serving him. If it's something other than that, by God's grace, may he spark within you today before you walk out of the church. Today, just a hunger for the holy things of God. Because that, my friends, is sincere love. He also says in verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. It's easy to bless those who bless you. It's easy to persecute those who persecute you. But remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you love only those who love you, how are you any different than a tax collector? A tax collector was believed to be a crook and a criminal. Even a tax collector knows how to take care of those who take care of him. So in response, being countercultural, we bless those who persecute. We bless and do not curse. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Do you have any friends that get that backwards? They rejoice when you're mourning, and they mourn when you have something to rejoice about. You ever known people like that? You're just like the first service. You guys are just staring at me as if you don't know what in the world I'm talking about. But you know people, don't you? That you have something good to share. It's good news. And they don't rejoice with you. They mourn. They throw a wet blanket on your excitement. And then when you grieve... When you have something sad, terrible that's happened to you and you just want to share that with somebody, a brother, sister in Christ, they don't grieve with you. In their heart, they rejoice. Well, it's about time. You got everything going for you. It's about time something doesn't work your way. But I'm going to pray for you, brother. I'm going to pray for you, sister. Don't you worry. Oh, I'm grieving for you. I'm really grieving. Do you know people that get it all backwards? We're supposed to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're supposed to mourn with those who mourn. Why? Because the massive mercy of God in Christ. Because of God's love for us, we've got to love others. So Paul says 12 imperatives in these few verses that you live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud or conceited. In view of God's mercy, you look up and you see a God worth worshiping. You look within, you see a sinner worth saving. You look around and you see Christian siblings worth loving. Fourth and finally, I want you to look behind. And you'll find enemies worth winning look at verse 17 to 21 do not repay anyone evil for evil be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone if it's possible as far as it belongs and depends on you live at peace with everyone do not take revenge my friends leave room for God's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord on the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him something to drink in doing this you'll heap burning coals on his head do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. If you know the massive mercy of God in Christ in your life, then you know that you're going to have some enemies that are hot on your trail. All you got to do is look behind. You look behind and you will see enemies. And because of God's mercy, they're enemies worth winning for the gospel. So don't repay evil for evil. If they do you harm, don't do it right back to them. Once again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if, if you do that, how can you be different than the pagans? So be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. And I know what you're thinking. We can't agree on anything. How can we agree on what's right? Once again, rightness is not arbitrary. Rightness is not subjective. Being right is not even internal and individualistic. For God defines what is right. So when he says do what is right, he's saying do what God tells us to do. And as much as it depends on you, if it's possible, live at peace with everyone. Now I know there's some real bozos out there and they don't want peace. 
But most people want peace. Most people pursue peace. Most individuals want peace in their hearts, in their homes, in their marriages, in the marketplace, in their churches, on their streets, in their nations. Most people want peace. I know there are some real knuckleheads. And that's why Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. My father would tell me, don't start a fight, but you can end one. Don't be looking for a fight. It may be coming at you. Now, if it comes at you, you'd be ready to defend the faith, defend yourself, defend the gospel. But don't go looking for a fight. For as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sometimes uh, we want to take revenge, don't we? We want to retaliate. I mean, who among us is not wanting to get even with the clown that wronged us? Most of us want to live by that Irish blessing. The Irish blessing goes something like this. May those who love you, love you. Those who don't love you, may God turn their hearts. If God doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so you'll recognize them by their limping. Most of us want to live by that. That's a motto I can live by, right? I mean, God turned my enemies towards me. And if you don't turn their hearts, at least turn their ankles. That way I'll recognize that they're my enemies because they're limping along in life. And Paul gives a proverb. If your enemy causes you, or if your enemy's hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. In so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. I remember as a child, when I came across that proverb, I thought to myself, yes, awesome. Because my kindness is going to hurt my enemy. Yes, that's what I want. I want my kindness to kill them. I want my kindness to scorch them. I want my kindness to singe every lousy hair on their head. I want my goodness and my kindness to be a, a, a heap of burning coals on their heads. Oh, but friends, the proverb is not for fiery judgment. For the imagery of burning coals is not so they'll be judged. But that's the image of remorse and repentance. So you live your life in such a way, so counterintuitive, so countercultural. You live your life, you live out the gospel ethic so that even your enemies say, wait a minute, there is something different about you. You do life differently. You treat your spouse and your children differently. You even work in the marketplace differently. And by your actions may even your enemies be brought to repentance because of the good news of the gospel. So Paul says, don't repay evil for evil. Be overcome with good. Why do we have to live like this? This is hard. I'd much rather just get revenge. I would rather retaliate, wouldn't you? Why do we have to live this way? Don't forget the opening phrase, in view of God's mercy. Look up, look within, look around, look behind. In view of God's massive mercy in your life in Christ, in view of God's mercy, you look at everybody differently. So look up and you'll see a God worth worshiping. Look within, you'll see a sinner worth saving. Look around, you'll see siblings worth loving. Look behind, you'll find some enemies worth winning for the gospel. Because of God's mercy, we look at everybody differently. I wonder, are you a living sacrifice? If not, that's what God calls you to be, complete surrender to him. And I wonder, is there any relationship that needs a makeover in your life? Maybe it's a person that's seated beside you. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, a coworker, a classmate, teammate. Is there anybody across the aisle? Is there anybody 
across the pew. And you need a relationship makeover. Today's the day to do it. And once again, why? Why am I supposed to live this way? Because of God's mercy. In view of God's mercies, offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Uh, We give you this invitation. Father, we have covered a lot of ground, a lot of territory, but by your spirit, I pray that you will speak clearly, pointedly, and help us to respond obediently to you. Lord, we love you and we need you. Help us to be a living sacrifice. Help us to give our relationships over to you, all because your mercy is so much more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.